whoever's listening. We've got a lot to talk about today, and I'm going to sort of uh, give you a rundown of what we're going to be looking at. We are going to be looking at the horrific hurricanes that are, or hurricane that has been hitting the southeast. We, and specifically, we're going to kind of talk about some of the false rumors of looting that has been associated with that. Then we're going to talk about the debt ceiling. We're going to be talking about an LGBT rights case that has hit the Supreme Court, which the Trump administration, no surprise, has taken a rather reactionary position on. We're going to be talking about DACA, and then we're going to be talking about the main focus of today's podcast, which is why do so many conservatives, particularly those associated with the Republican Party, seem hell-bent on defending the worst aspects of the Democratic Party's history? Why do they seem so determined to fall on General Lee's sword, so to speak? And I'll um, elaborate a little bit more about what I mean by that when we get to that portion of the podcast. So first of all, I want to say that my thoughts and prayers are with all the victims of the hurricane not only in states like Texas, but also in states like Florida. I mentioned Texas because that's where I'm going to be focused on for the purpose of this podcast. This is a horrific event. It is going to be costing not only, it will be not only causing many people to have their homes destroyed, but it will also undoubtedly cause the deaths of some people. And I think that we need to really start looking at methods to try to minimize the damage of these hurricanes, such as by looking at climate change, and also figure out what the best emergency responses are to events like this. I think that there is a natural human instinct when a hurricane is coming not to want to leave your home because you don't want the home to be destroyed by the elements. Obviously, you know, if you've put decades of work and money into that home, that's a natural response. However, it is not an ideal response. People have got to understand that when a hurricane is about to hit, the most important thing for you to do is to protect yourself, your loved ones, and your pets. And the way that you do that is by evacuating as quickly and efficiently as possible. But that's not going to be the primary focus when when I'm talking about the hurricane. What I want to talk about is some of the fake looting rumors that have emerged specifically about Houston, Texas. Now, this isn't a new thing. I remember years ago, now um, some of my younger listeners may not remember this, but when Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans years ago, back in, uh, yes, 2005, there was some looting, unfortunately, by, and um, the looting was by residents of all races. However, the way that it was covered was often somewhat racialized. Black residents were significantly more likely to be referred to as looters, and for some people, looters became kind of a racial code word. Now, in the case of New Orleans, despite the fact that there was looting going on, the scope of the general chaos in the city got significantly exaggerated. Specifically, many of the, many of the lower income residents who had been displaced by the hurricane 
evacuate ended up evacuating to a dome in the city, and there were a lot of false rumors about how bad things got there. There, as it as it just so happened, there was a person who wrote one of those right wing chain emails that gets forwarded around where they were talking about how horrible the mo- most of the black people who were who had been evacuated into the dome were. Unfortunately for conservatives who were spreading this around, it turned out that the person who wrote this story had never actually been in the dome. The whole thing was just made up out of thin air to promote racism. Now, what we're seeing in Houston is that there are a lot of fake reports of looting. People are trying to claim that there is mass looting, particularly by poor and minority residents of Houston. Now, I, I looked into this, and if you go to, if you, if you Google fake looting reports in Houston, you see the headline on Heavy.com by Daniel S. Levine that reads, Handful of looters arrested in Houston during Harvey as fake reports spread. Now, on Tuesday of this past week, Houston Police Chief Art Acevedo said that 14 looters had been arrested since Sunday. Most of the other reports of looting, if not all of them, have been determined to be fake, or have, at the very least, not been proven. Now, obviously, one incident of looting is too many. However, what you have to think about is 14 looters in a city of over 2 million people, hundreds of thousands of whom are African-American, and hundreds of thousands more of whom are Hispanic. So what this shows is that looting is certainly not the norm in Houston, even in the case of this hurricane, and that trying to claim otherwise is fallacious and dangerous. And I think, unfortunately, what this shows is that people will use anything to promote racist ideology and racist attitudes and stereotypes. And of course, we're going to be talking a lot more about that on this episode and about other episodes, because I am first and foremost, when it comes to politics, a civil rights advocate. But in any case, this is also a reminder that when you see something being spread around on social media or by pundits of any political persuasion, whether it's a Rush Limbaugh or a Michael Moore, you've got to fact check it. Not only is it damaging to just a variety of aspects of politics and social interactions to try to claim to try to spread fake news. I hate to use that phrase because it's been essentially become a buzzword for the Trump administration to dismiss anything they don't like. But in this case, these reports of mass looting are actually fake news. And in addition to just it being wrong to spread false information, it's also very embarrassing. Because if you become known as the person who spreads around stories that are just made up, that just come from hack sites, then you're going to reduce your credibility drastically. And what is in all probability going to happen is that even when you post a true story, nobody's going to believe it. And really, why would they? So moving on, we have the matter of the debt ceiling. And... When I talk about the debt ceiling, I'm probably going to lose a lot of the friends that I just made with my comments about looting in Houston. 
So Donald Trump, I'm going to talk in a minute about why I don't see this as much of a surprise, but Donald Trump has basically announced that he is going to try to work with Democrats to actually negotiate on raising the debt ceiling. Uh, Donald Trump used the names Chuck and Nancy to refer to Democratic Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer and House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi. Now, if in case it's not clear already, I intensely dislike Trump both as a person and as a president. I disagree strongly with the lion's share of his policies, and I would actually argue, you know, um, I have an MA in history. I've been into history, especially U.S. history, for the last 15 years or so. And prior to Trump being elected, I always said that Andrew Jackson was the one president that when I looked at that guy, I, I truly believed that he was an evil man. Now, there have been plenty of presidents that I dislike, possibly the majority. You know, I have said very harsh things about many of our founding fathers. I have said harsh things about Woodrow Wilson. I think that George W. Bush's reputation has been wrongly rehabilitated. I think that there are many parallels between George W. Bush and Donald Trump. Um, I think that presidents like Bill Clinton, Ronald Reagan, FDR were overrated. But none of those people were individuals that I could look at and just honestly say, I think that that person was evil. Many of them were not necessarily good or ethical people, but I didn't really think that I could label them as evil. Trump is someone that I look at, and I truly believe that that man is evil. Now, with all of that said, I do find it kind of amusing that he is using the first names to refer to congressional and Senate leaders. I've always, oh, I should say, I've never been a big fan of formality. Um, the high school I went to, we called all of, our, all of our adults working there by their first names, and I thought that worked perfectly well. So we'll give Trump just a shred of credit for that, for making me chuckle, if nothing else. But many of my more liberal listeners will probably see the decision to raise the debt ceiling as a positive thing. I don't. I don't find it surprising because what I was well aware of is that when Trump was running is that however much he might talk about reigning in the national debt, the odds of him actually doing that were rather low for three basic reasons. Number one, Donald Trump has virtually no coherent political philosophy except for enriching and empowering himself. So you really can't expect him to stick to anything that he says he's going to do. And I knew that during the election. Some of his supporters are acting like this was some sort of bombshell shocker that they never could have seen coming. Well, if that's how you feel, then I'm sorry that you're disappointed, but I knew that that was likely what was going to happen. Now, the second reason that I knew that Trump was likely to waffle on lowering the national debt is that, simply put, many of his proposals for specific policies were not consistent with lowering the national debt. For example, 
he called for increases in our already massive amount of defense spending. That costs money. That helps drive up the debt. It's one of the key reasons that the debt ballooned under Ronald Reagan. Now, the third reason, and actually before I get into that, also policies such as his immigration enforcement, including the wall that we all knew Mexico wasn't going to pay for and which they are not paying for. Proposals like that, again, cost money. So there was really no reason to think that Donald Trump could lower the national debt or even keep it from expanding without, shall we say, waffling on a lot of his other campaign promises. Now, the third reason that I was very skeptical when he was talking about, you know, reining in spending, reining in the national debt, balancing the budget, is that, simply put, these are the types of promises that very frequently get made by candidates and rarely get followed through on. Ronald Reagan predicted, when he was debating John Anderson, um, John Anderson was a Republican congressman from Illinois, who actually, as the party went right, he went left. And after kind of washing out in the 1980 Republican primaries, John Anderson ran as a third-party candidate, and he kind of picked up some support from Republicans who felt that the party had gotten too conservative, and Democrats who, for a variety of reasons, were not fans of Jimmy Carter. But in any case, Anderson was debating Reagan, and Anderson basically said that before we could cut taxes, he didn't necessarily say that cutting taxes was automatically a bad idea under any circumstances, but he did say that before we cut taxes, we had to cut spending, otherwise we would be sticking our grandchildren with more debt. And Ronald Reagan poo-pooed this idea and basically said that if we reined in, or if we cut taxes, that the government would have less money to spend, and therefore they would spend less, and the bat budget would be balanced, and the debt would be brought under control. That, of course, did not happen. Ronald Reagan raised the debt ceiling many times. The budget deficits were drastically increased, and the national debt cleared $1 trillion for the first time in American history. So Donald Trump is trying to say that he wants to work with Democrats and compromise on raising the debt ceiling the way that Reagan did. And I'm going to explain why, now that, I'm, now that I've explained why no one should be surprised by this, I'm going to explain why that's a bad idea. At the end of the day, a country that can't keep its debt under control is never going to be a financially stable country. There are several reasons for this. Now, number one is simply the fact that Anytime you don't live within your means, there's going to be problems. We see that with people all the time. You know, it's one of the reasons why we ended up with a recession. And for some reason, many politicians seem to think that government is exempt from this, but that's simply not the case. Now, one of the, pro one of the other problems with erasing national debt is that it effectively, it puts the United States in a position where other countries, such as China, basically have us over a barrel, you know, because, well, 
we owe them money, simply put. And it also, the more money you borrow and the more debt you don't pay back, it makes other countries much less inclined to loan money to you. After all, would you want to loan money to somebody who had, who had a history of defaulting on their payments? And in general, there has been, it doesn't matter what political party is in charge, there has been a very irresponsible lack of concern about our ever-ballooning national debt. So I honestly think that the United States is going to have to live, have to learn to live within its means. It may not do that, but it's absolutely a necessity that we make every attempt to do that. And that is going to mean, I think, first of all, we're going to have to, there are going to have to be some spending cuts. I think that defense spending needs to be cut. I think that there are domestic programs where we need to spend more efficiently and wisely. There are some domestic programs that need to be privatized and replaced with a voucher system, um, which I think would lower government spending. And then there are some, there are some things, actually a lot of things that the government is doing that are costing us money that really just don't fall under what I believe is a proper is the proper role of government. One example of that is the war on drugs, which Donald Trump's attorney general, Jeff Sessions, seems to be pursuing with great vigor. The war on drugs has been an abject failure. It has only been successful at putting people behind bars needlessly, which of course increases the money that we spend on prisons, and just generally make, making us more debt-ridden and depriving many people of individual rights and civil liberties. Well, I don't want to be, I don't want to, uh, be engaging in what TV tropes would call the Department of Redundancy Department, but the war on drugs is not compatible with individual freedom, and it is not compatible with financial stability because of the amount of money that it costs. So in conclusion, I think that Donald Trump, while he may win some momentary praise from liberals, I certainly don't think that a lot of liberals are going to decide that they were wrong about Trump and that he should get a second term, but I think he'll win some momentary praise from liberals for his move on the debt ceiling. However, I think that it is very ill-advised, and I would also think that in this particular case, motives matter. Because I think what many liberals need to remember is that, in all probability, one of the reasons that Donald Trump wants to raise the debt ceiling is so that he can continue to pursue massive defense spending, the drug war, you know, ma mass draconian enforcement of immigration laws, including probably some new ones that he's going to put forward. And that actually, I think, segues very well into our next point, which is DACA. Now, before I get into DACA, I want to start off with a story. So, once upon a time, there was a country that it was much like the United States. It had kind of, it had a significant amount of territory in North America. And at one point in this country's history, people started moving into its territory from another country. And these immigrants largely had no interest in assimilating into the culture. They 
did not speak the same language. They were of a different ethnic background. And they came with their own sets of traditions that they felt should be accommodated by this new country that had accepted them into its borders. One of these traditions was slavery. Now, this nation was moving in the direction of outlawing slavery, but many of the immigrants came there with their slaves, and some who didn't come there with their slaves nevertheless supported the institution for various reasons. And they felt that this country, if it, pa if it passed anti-slavery laws, should not apply those laws to the lands that these immigrants were moving into. And when this country decided, no, if you want to live here, you have to abide by our laws, these immigrants effectively started a revolution and ended up breaking away and taking territory from this other country. Now, in case, if, if you aren't a history geek, you may be wondering what I'm talking about. The country in question was Mexico, and the immigrants were coming from the United States into what is now Texas. And they felt that the Mexican government should accommodate their desire to continue slavery. And when they didn't, when Mexico didn't accommodate that, that's one of the big reasons why we ended up with the Alamo. And then, of course, after Texas was annexed over the objections of many anti-slavery Americans at the time, then that ratcheted up tensions that helped lead to the Mexican War, which led to Mexico losing even more territory. Incidentally, or I would actually say not incidentally, I think it's pretty clear to draw a causative line here, the states like California, Arizona, New Mexico, that tend to have especially high levels of illegal immigration from Mexico, are areas that were once owned by Mexico and were effectively plundered from the United States, I mean, effectively plundered from Mexico by the United States in the Mexican War. So I would actually argue that these facts, far from being just interesting from an academic standpoint, although I believe they are, these facts have to be considered when we are assessing the issue of illegal immigration from Mexico. I would argue that illegal immigration from Mexico should be accepted as, even by people, you know, there are many people like me who don't see mass immigration from Mexico as harmful. You know, I would certainly like to see our laws changed to make it easier for people to quickly immigrate here, provided that they don't have a felony record. So I am in favor of very open immigration, very open borders, and I think that that's a positive good. But even people who don't see that as a positive thing, I would argue, should accept large amounts of immigration from Mexico as sort of a trade-off for the fact that we took a lot of land from Mexico. And even people who are not living in states that were once part of Mexico, because many, many Americans don't live in land that was once part of Mexico, the state that I live in, Georgia, was not part of Mexico. We just stole that from Native Americans. <laughs> but I would argue that even the people who don't see mass immigration as a positive thing should sort of accept that trade-off because, quite frankly, even if you were living in a state like Georgia or Illinois or Alabama or New York that was not part of Mexico, we have still benefited from the wealth that has been generated 
by the theft of that territory from Mexico, the United States might be in a much less wealthy position if we did not have, for example, Texas and California, you know, the oil, the gold rush, etc. Now, if we want to look at DACA specifically, because so far I haven't really touched on that specific aspect of the immigration issue, but if we want to look at DACA specifically, what we're talking about here, by and large, are people who really didn't have a say-so in coming to this country illegally because they were children who were brought with adult family members. And I would argue that it is unjust to punish those children for stuff that their parents did, even if you see illegal immigration as a serious crime under all circumstances. And I believe that it comes across as extremely petty, because it is extremely petty, to be targeting a relatively small percentage of the population who have to have basically almost impeccable records to even qualify for DACA is extremely petty to be targeting them like this out of some misplaced sense of misplaced sense of justice. Now, as is commonly the case with these types of issues, there's been a lot of misinformation going around. Just want to give you an example. Um, Laura Ingram, you know, a right, a uh, longtime right-wing pundit. I remember the first time I saw her, she was crapping on a young kid for just, in her mind, the terrible offense of cross-dressing. So she hasn't really come a long way since then. Um, but she claimed that this would not lead to mass deportation. She is wrong, as she so often is, and which will I'll explain that. Representative Jim Jordan, an Ohio Republican, argued that, quote, only folks that are subject to deportation, that the only folks who are subject to deportation right now are those that have engaged in criminal activity. Now, the New York Times, which I think most of us will agree, whether we agree with its politics or not, and I, I agree with some of the stuff they do, I strongly disagree with other things that they've done, I think there are good and bad aspects of the very long history, but... The New York Times explains that these claims are false. To quote the New York Times, quote, The Department of Homeland Security has been clear that officials will potentially arrest and deport any undocumented immigrant without protective status, regardless of a criminal record. Though undocumented immigrants with criminal records still make up the majority of immigration arrests, non-criminal arrests more than doubled in Mr. Trump's first 100 days as president compared to the same time period in 2016, end quote. So there you go. This is having a severe negative impact on a lot of innocent people. And I would argue that if we allow this to stand, if we allow the dismantling of DACA to stand, then it won't end here. Because many Republicans, including not only Donald Trump, but the sort of fake moderate Lindsey Graham and others, have said that they want to eliminate birthright citizenship. Now, to clarify what birthright citizenship is, under the 14th Amendment, all people born or naturalized in the United States are U.S. citizens, and they have all the responsibilities and rights that come along with that. Now, obviously, the 14th Amendment was not written primarily with children of immigrants in mind, it was written primarily with African Americans, especially ex-slaves in mind. But nonetheless, that is, the law as written 
does apply to children of immigrants. There's really no way to change that without amending the Constitution, which some people would like to do. I think that would be an atrocious action. I strongly oppose amending the Constitution to get rid of birthright citizenship, but that is what birthright citizenship is. So many conservatives have argued that birthright citizenship should be eliminated so that children who are born in the United States are not automatically citizens depending on what their parents' immigration status is. So you would what that would essentially do is create large swaths of the country, large swaths of Americans who are basically people without a country because they would not obviously necessarily be Mexican citizens because they were born here, but they wouldn't automatically be American citizens either. And as some more sensible conservatives have pointed out, this actually flies in the face of one of the stated goals of conservatives, which is to make immigrants assimilate. Because when you have a group of people that are born in the United States but are not U.S. citizens, that makes it very much harder for them to assimilate, integrate, whatever word you want to use. And it also, incidentally, is much more likely to make them feel alienated from the United States in general, which I would hope is not a goal that conservatives want to promote, although sometimes I wonder. So now I want to talk about an LGBT rights case that's gone before the Supreme Court. Now, for a long time now, there's been kind of this issue festering, which is whether or not, for example, bakers, florists, photographers have a right to refuse services to same-sex couples. Now, specifically in the case of wedding cakes, what the controversy usually revolves around is bakers who run establishments that are supposed to be open to the public, but they don't really want to cater a gay wedding. Now, they will argue that they'll serve gay customers, they just won't serve their weddings, even though they serve heterosexual couples' weddings. And I would argue that what essentially this amounts to is trying to, cl is trying to say that it's okay for heterosexuals to get the gold package when it comes to business services and gay people to only get the silver package. And of course, the Trump administration in a move that should surprise no one, is siding with the bakers. I think that Donald Trump, from the beginning of his presidential run, demonstrated a hostility to gay rights. He has repeatedly said that he opposes same-sex marriage. He, like everything else, has gone back and forth on this, but he did claim at one point that he'd be very open to appointing judges to reverse the Supreme Court decision on same-sex marriage. He has filled his administration with homophobes. He has already made statements against anti-discrimination pro uh, protections for LGBT workers. It's a little bit, the specifics of the case are a little bit complicated. I'll um, tell you, though, at the end of this where you can go to my blog and you can find where I sort of get more in-depth about that case and about other things in the area of LGBT rights that Trump has done that are very destructive and dangerous. But suffice it to say, he is not a gay rights advocate. He is a gay rights opponent. Now, he is not as loud and militant about that necessarily as Mike Pence, although he seemed to be giving him a run for his money with his recent comments about transgenders in the military. But Trump 
is a socially conservative homophobe. I am sorry for anyone who thinks that I'm being too harsh, but that's the way I see it. Now, I want to talk in depth a little bit more about why I don't think it's a violation of religious freedom for a baker to have to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding. What it boils down to is that when you run a business, you cannot discriminate based on immutable traits. Unfortunately, in many states, you are allowed to discriminate based on sexual orientation, but this is not consistent with fairly long-standing precedent on civil rights laws because you can't discriminate based on other immutable traits like race or national origin, for example. And I would argue that anti-discrimination laws, the full protection of anti-discrimination laws, should be extended to gays and lesbians. You can no more try to argue that it's a violation of religious freedom for a baker to have to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding. You can no more argue that than, than to say that a baker is having their religious freedom violated if they have to bake a cake for an interracial couple. Now, before people think that that is some silly analogy, it's worth noting that, historically, some people tried to argue that their religious faith compelled them to oppose interracial marriage. If you go back to one of the original anti-interracial marriage rulings in Virginia, you know, in, involved in the Loving versus Virginia case, you see that the judge uses religious arguments. If you look at Bob Jones University, a cesspool university, a, big, a cesspool of bigotry in South Carolina, you're going to see that for years they argued that first segregation in general and then stigmatizing and banning interracial couples was required by their religion. So this is not some hypothetical. People have tried to argue before their religious faith compels them to discriminate based on race. If you also, if you look at the Bible, people will say, well, the Bible condemns homosexuality, it condemns same-sex marriage, it condemns adultery a lot more, but we, we don't need to get into that because it might offend some sensibilities of people such as Newt Gingrich and Donald Trump, but the Bible also seems to pretty clearly forbid interfaith marriages. So a Christian baker or a Muslim baker or an Orthodox Jewish baker under the sort of legal philosophy that many conservatives are employing with the gay wedding cake controversy, under that rather rancid legal philosophy, a conservative religious baker could claim their religious faith forbids them from baking a cake for an interfaith couple. So I think, and I think also, it's really, it's difficult from a legal standpoint to say that, as some people try to do, that discrimination against same-sex couples should be, and same-sex same-sex attracted people, gay people, should be outlawed in general, but should be permitted specifically when it comes to wedding services by businesses. Because that's a rather arbitrary distinction, and I think that it would be difficult to, even if it were desirable, which I don't think it is, that's a distinction that would be very difficult to maintain as time goes on. And to get to explain what I'm talking about here, what you run into is, okay, let's say we establish that discrimin that in general, LGBT people are covered under anti-discrimination laws. 
but there's an exception for people providing wedding services because, for example, in the case of a baker, their religion compels them not to serve a same-sex wedding. So let's say two years down the road, a restaurant owner comes forward and says that they're willing to serve gay customers, but but that their religious faith compels them not to serve same-sex couples when they come in together. How are we going to... In a, how are we going to say that that's not allowed, but the other forms of discrimination that we're trying to tolerate are allowed? The problem is that once you say that discrimination is acceptable by a private business, or by especially by the government, but also by a business, it's really kind of, to sort of paraphrase what Gary Johnson once said, it is a black hole. There is, or to use another metaphor, there is no off-ramp once you get on that track. And I would also say, you know, just um, before the Alliance Defense Fund gets on my case, I do not believe that churches should be compelled to marry same-sex couples. I would not set foot in a church that opposed same-sex marriage. I am proud that I have generally, except under extraordinary circumstances, that I have generally managed to avoid doing that for all of my adult life. However, if Reverend Stu Pidgett decides that homosexuality is an abomination and that he doesn't want to marry same-sex couples. That is his decision, just as it is my decision to rake him across the coals for. However, your business is not a church. If you think that your religious faith compels you not to serve people based on their race, their sexual orientation, their gender, their gender identity, etc., then you need to close down your business and become a minister. Preferably in a, if preferably for you, in a conservative denomination. Um, and you may want to do a little research on that because I happened to, uh, a friend of mine was telling me about a coworker of theirs who was just appalled because the Presbyterian church had started performing same-sex marriages so they decided to find another church that saw that that saw homophobia as more godly. Unfortunately, they didn't do much research on churches, so they decided to join the Episcopal Church. Now, what apparently nobody told them, although I guess they never heard of Wikipedia, um, and I guess they just have been living under a rock for ten years. What this homophobic individual didn't quite understand is that the Episcopal Church has actually been performing same-sex marriages. For longer than the Presbyterian Church has. That's sort of a tangent, but I figured it would cheer people up. You know, most of this podcast has been pretty dour, so I figured that this would be kind of a uh, nice way of sort of lightening the mood before I get into our main. The moment that we have all been waiting for. When I talk about the tendency of many modern conservatives to fall on General Lee's sword. So I want to explain a little bit about the context here. One of the longest-running myths about the American Civil War is that Robert E. Lee opposed slavery. Now, this myth has been thoroughly debunked by a host of scholars. I did a blog post about two and a half years ago debunking it, but it has continued to persist. And it's one that a number of conservatives have repeated. In 2015, David French of National Review, who was floated in some circles as a conservative alternative to Donald Trump, who would have 
in my mind, been as bad or in some ways worse than Trump. But he wrote that Robert E. Lee opposed slavery, which was kind of an odd, it was part of an odd attempt to try to defend the display of the Confederate battle flag by South Carolina. And then in 2017, I should say a few weeks ago, in response to the Charlottesville protests and the horrific murder of Heather Heyer that took place there, right-wing pundit Dinesh D'Souza tweeted that Robert E. Lee opposed slavery. Now, to give credit where credit is due, even the right-wing website Daily Caller admitted that this claim was bollocks. But what's interesting about it, besides the obvious, is that in all probability, we can be, well, in fact, we're pretty much certain that Robert E. Lee never voted for a Republican in his entire life. Biographers have talked about how he probably supported the Whig Party, that's W-H-I-G, not W-I-G, prior to the party's demise in the 1850s. And a lot of former Whigs, including Abe Lincoln, did become Republicans. But Robert E. Lee was one of the Southern Whigs who started supporting Democrats after the Whig Party folded and the GOP was founded. Now, some of our evidence for this includes that in the 1856 letter to his wife, where he discussed slavery, and in this letter, he defended slavery. Many people have taken one line and interpreted it as anti-slavery, but the thrust of the letter is a fairly strong defense of the South's peculiar institution. Now, in this letter, as part of his defense of slavery, Lee praised Democratic President Franklin Pierce for a speech that criticized not just abolitionists, but also more moderate anti-slavery Republicans. That same year, he expressed his satisfaction that the pro-slavery Democrat, James Buchanan, had beaten the anti-slavery Republican, John C. Fremont. In 1860, he called on the Democratic Party nominee, Stephen Douglas, to withdraw from the election and unite the party behind John Breckinridge, the preferred candidate of the Southern Democrats, who was running on the, quote, Southern Democratic Party ticket. And the reason that Lee wanted to unite the party behind John Breckinridge was to ensure that, quote, Lincoln be defeated, end quote. In 1866, he blamed the Republican Party for the war. Now, while he was ineligible to vote in the 1868 election, due to, in a delicious irony, having lost his citizenship right as the ex-slaves were receiving constitutional guarantees of citizenship, he, so, but while he couldn't vote, he co-signed a letter that denounced the Republican Party's Reconstruction policies, and um, it was circulated by Democrats to drum up support for their presidential candidate, Horatio Seymour. Now, what all this means is that Hillary Clinton has literally supported more Republican presidential candidates than Robert E. Lee ever did. Nevertheless, we see conservative Republicans rushing to try to protect Lee's reputation, which is increasingly becoming tainted, as, as well it should be. Now, the attempt to try to rehabilitate the image of Robert E. Lee that many conservative Republicans are engaged in is part of a larger trend in which conservative Republicans... So, on the one hand, we have a very strange dichotomy here, and there's a very strange discrepancy going on. But I think it makes sense if you don't see conservative Republicans' motivations here 
as being positive. <laughs> what we see going on is that on the one hand, conservative Republicans correctly point out that the Democratic Party prior to, say, the 1960s, you can argue about exactly when the party switched. I tend to argue, or I, I do argue that it was the 60s, but for the first well over 100 years of its history, the Democratic Party had a very sordid history on race. It was the party of slavery, segregation, the Trail of Tears, and to a lesser extent, Japanese internment. There is no denying that. Some Democrats have unfortunately tried to kind of soft-pedal this aspect of the party's history, but there is no denying that for a very long part of its history, the Democratic Party was certainly the more racist of the two parties compared with the Republicans. And the Republican Party was due in part to its mild support of civil rights, but also due to the just brazen racism of the Democratic Party. The Republican Party, prior to the 1960s, was the more progressive of the two parties when it came to race. Again, I don't think that any serious historian will deny that. Some historians may debate when the shift took place, but no serious historian that I'm aware of would try to argue that in, say, 1860, that the Democrats were not the more racist party. That's the, there's really just no debating that. So conservative Republicans, as I would do if I were a Republican, often will bring this point out. But then on the flip side, they have an odd defensiveness when liberals attack pro-slavery or otherwise racist democratic symbols or individuals. So let's talk about the Confederate flag. The Confederate flag was a flag for the military of a government that was founded by pro-slavery Democrats to protect the institution of slavery. The Confederacy, of course, was defeated largely by Abe Lincoln, our country's first Republican president. So one would think, especially given their understandable desire to bring up the Democratic Party's racist history, one would think that conservative Republicans would be clamoring to get rid of the Confederate flag, Confederate monuments, statues to people like Robert E. Lee, etc. But not only have conservatives largely been opposing the um, protests against Confederate monuments, which I, can, I should probably just clarify— I do think that there are good, fair-minded people who oppose the Confederacy. They don't retrospectively side with the Confederacy. They don't support the Confederate flag, but they still support Confederate monuments. I disagree with those people, but I can respect them. But for a lot of conservative Republicans, it goes further than that. Because if you go back a couple years, you'll see conservative Republic that many conservative Republicans were defending the Confederate flag itself. That includes not only David French and Dinesh D'Souza, who I've mentioned previously, but people like Ann Coulter and Rush Limbaugh. Um, Lindsey Graham was only, was only persuaded to oppose the Confederate flag after the horrific church shooting in Charleston, South Carolina in 2015. Jeb Bush, for reasons I have a hard time fathoming, tried to say that while he opposed the Confederate flag, he opposed it for re because of how it had been somehow corrupted by later generations of white supremacists after the Civil War, and that it was not an offensive symbol 
based on what it originally stood for. Again, this seems like a very weird attempt to try to explain away the racism of 19th century Democrats, those 19th century Democrats who founded the Confederacy. And then you had candidates like Mike Huckabee and Rick Santorum, who said that it just wasn't an issue for presidential candidates. That's, of course, hilarious coming from those people because Huckabee, just a year or so later, was talking about how horrible it was that Colin Kaepernick would not stand for the national anthem. So I don't see how, if he thinks the Confederate flag is a trivial issue, I don't see how he thinks a football player not standing up during the national anthem is worth his time commenting on. And, of course, it's also kind of funny, this tendency of many conservatives to be fine with the Confederate flag, even though it was not only, even though it not only represented slavery, but was also a flag for a military that killed hundreds of thousands of American soldiers. There's a certain oddity in conservatives complaining, or not complaining about that, but having a problem with somebody sitting down during the national anthem. But I digress. And, of course, Santorum said that this wasn't a federal issue, even though, if you look at his record, he had actually invoked, he had, he had compared gay marriage to slavery in order to justify a constitutional amendment against same-sex marriage. So Santorum had some very selective federalism going on there. But in any case, conservative support for the Confederate flag is not anomalous. That is a very mainstream conservative position that will not put you in ill standing within what might be loosely described as the conservative, as the conservative movement. And of course, you, it doesn't stop there, because you see that if somebody opposes some civil rights bill from the 1960s, like if somebody argues that the Civil Rights Act was a mistake, or that the Voting Rights Act should be repealed, or that the Fair Housing Act was a mistake, it's much more likely to be a conservative Republican than a Democrat. Look at Rand Paul. He, before he had to kind of backpedal due to the controversy, he spoke out against the Fair Housing Act. He spoke out against the portion of the Civil Rights Act that applied to private businesses. Just a few years ago, you can see that, um, and actually Ron Paul took similar positions and opposed the Voting Rights Act as well. Uh, just a few years ago, the Texas Republican Party opposed what it called the Voter Rights Act which I'm not sure what's scarier, the fact that they wanted to repeal the Voting Rights Act or the fact that they couldn't even get the name right. You can also see conservative writers such as Jeff Jacobi and Ben Shapiro also arguing against crucial aspects of the Civil Rights Act. And Dinesh D'Souza, ironically, has really tried to have his cake and eat it too. You know, you'll see D'Souza comes up a lot in here because he's one of the worst offenders of what I'm talking about, although he's uh, he's not alone, obviously, but um, D'Souza has basically did an entire movie that was largely devoted to exposing the Democratic Party's racist history. And again, I got no problem with that. However, he has alternately denounced the Democrats for providing most of the votes against the Civil Rights Act, while also arguing that the portions of the act that apply to private businesses should be repealed. This is insanity. And then it goes even further than this. 
because if you look at even the institution of slavery, you will periodically see conservatives, including, again, D'Souza, Walter Williams, Michael Medved, former Arkansas legislator John Hubbard, John Hubbard, who have tried to argue that modern African Americans are somehow better off because of slavery. Again, not only is this just racist bile, but it's also a very weird attempt to try to find some sort of upside to an institution that the Republican Party was founded largely to oppose. It, it just makes no sense. And even if you step aside from issues of slavery and Jim Crow and look at uh, Andrew Jackson's Indian removal policies. So with Andrew Jackson, you have somebody who not only believed in slavery, owned slaves, whips or had slaves whipped incredibly violently. There's just an absolute, you know, if you, if you look at, I, I'm not going to get into the details here, but if you look at an advertisement that Andrew Jackson put out for one of his slaves that had run away, he advocate. I mean, I'll just I'll I'll tell you what he said. He basically offered to pay anyone who would lash the if he found the slave, lash the slave up to I believe something like three hundred lashes. So not only but not only was Andrew Jackson so racist toward African Americans, but he also was in favor of the Trail of Tears. He it was under his administration that Congress passed the Indian Removal Act, which laid the groundwork. For the Trail of Tears that took place predominantly under his successor, Democratic President Martin Van Buren. But the removal of Indian tribes from the Southeast during that time period was supported primarily by Democrats. The Whig Party, for all its faults at the time, was much more inclined to oppose it. And Andrew Jackson was not just a man of his time in that sense. The Trail of Tears was highly controversial at the time that it was going on. Um, I would venture to say that probably the majority of people in the Northeast opposed it. You can find, you know, Slate's talked about this. I've talked about this on my blog, which I'm going to give you guys a link to at the end of this. But even at the time that Andrew Jackson was promoting Indian removal, his policies generated a massive amount of controversy. So this whole, oh, well, he was just a man of the times defense doesn't really hold water. It's bogus. So you would think, okay, Andrew Jackson was the first Democratic Party president. The Democratic Party has really not done nearly as much as it should to repudiate him. They still have the annual Jefferson-Jackson dinners in most states. Um, so you would think that Republicans would be clamoring to scrub any kind of tribute to Andrew Jackson, but you'd be wrong. Donald Trump has spoken positively of Andrew Jackson, he and certain other conservatives, such as Michael Savage and Ben Carson, have criticized the attempts to, um, you know, the attempts to take Andrew Jackson off the twenty-dollar bill. So when you look at, you know, when you look at a lot of the people now who are defending Jackson, not all of them by any stretch, but many of the defenders of Jackson now, and many of the people who want him to stay on the twenty-dollar bill or who are upset about even the idea of him sharing the $20 bill with Harriet Tubman. They are mostly conservative, or not necessarily mostly, but many of them are conservatives. And just as a side note, I would argue that Andrew Jackson would not even be fit to scrub the feet of Harriet Tubman, but that's another matter.
So um, then you also even have to look at Japanese-American internment. Now, Japanese-American internment is a little bit different because um, that had a lot of bipartisan support. Uh, Earl Warren, a prominent Republican governor at the time, who was later a vice presidential candidate and achieved the most, degree, the most amount of his fame as a Supreme Court justice after he was appointed to the bench by Eisenhower. But Earl Warren, when he was governor of California, did support Japanese internment. He later disavowed his views, but there's no denying that he, and certain other Republicans such as Fiorello LaGuardia, unfortunately supported Japanese-American internment. However, it was, the policy was really put into place by FDR, a Democratic Party president that many free-market conservative Republicans hate. It was supported by a lot of other Democrats, not only Southerners such as John Rankin and Martin Dyes, but also West Coast Democrats such as Henry Jackson and Warren Magnuson, who were largely liberal on issues of civil rights for African Americans, but who took very racist, xenophobic attitudes toward Japanese Americans. And even if you look at the court, a majority Democratic Party Supreme Court voted to uphold Japanese internment. Only two Democrats dissented. The lone Republican judge dissented them in joining. I mean, uh, joined them in dissenting. Sorry, I mixed up my words there. And if you look at the Republican politicians who opposed internment outside the Supreme, even just outside the Supreme Court, there were very few politicians from either party who, who spoke out against internment at the time it happened. That said, most of the politicians who spoke out against it were Republicans. That would include people such as Senator Robert Taft and uh, Mayor Ralph Carr, who was the mayor of a Colorado town where a lot of internees were, were placed. And so again, you would think that Republicans would have nothing positive to say nowadays about Japanese internment. Again, you would be wrong. Donald Trump has actually categorically refused to state that internment was the wrong decision. If you look at, um, if you look at Michelle Malkin, a popular conservative pundit, she actually wrote an entire book years ago that was devoted to defending Japanese internment. Like, that was the central focus of the book. She didn't even try to hide it. So there is a, there is a very disturbing tendency among many conservative Republicans to sort of go, well, not there's no sort of about it, to go to the wall to defend some of the worst aspects, well, the worst aspects, the very worst aspects of Democratic Party history. And at the same time, try to blame those aspects of history on the, on the Democratic Party. And I do think that the Democratic Party as an institution, especially historically, does deserve most of the blame that conservative Republicans are trying to get on it, the pro or tr trying to give to it. The problem is, well, one of the many problems is that you can't draw a straight line from the Democratic Party in the 1820s, in the 1850s and 60s, even in the first half of the 20th century. You can't really draw a straight line from that to the modern Democratic Party. They're really... The differences between an Andrew Jackson and a Bernie Sanders are so vast that, I mean, you can't even really compare the two of them. And there has been a significant defection of Southern Democrats to the Republican Party. And there also has been a less publicized defection of certain more liberal Republicans 
to the Democratic Party, or at least to becoming independents. This actually, and this predated Trump by many years. Um, but there is this, there is this weird desire of conservatives to, as I, as I said earlier, have their cake and eat it too, in which they lambast the Democratic Party for its past support of slavery, segregation, Indian removal, Japanese internment. But then when liberals try to, I mean, you can't, you can't undo that, but when liberals try to sort of address, address aspects of that history, conservatives accuse them of just being politically correct and end up implicitly and tacitly defending it. And that really, I think, shows that whatever these conservatives will try to say, that there has been a serious shift in both the two parties. Effectively, the party of Lincoln has become the party of Trump, and the party of Andrew Jackson has become the party of Barack Obama, Bernie Sanders, etc. And I would suggest that if conservative Republicans don't want to be labeled racist, that they stop defending those aspects of the Democratic Party's history and actually try to live up to the legacy of previous generations of more, for the time period at least, enlightened Republicans. So before we close out, I want to give you guys a link to my blog. You can find it at charlesohalloranboyd.wordpress.com, all lowercase, and I talk about these issue, issues like this and others on there. The, my last blog was, was actually called Falling on General Lee's Sword. So if you want to read some of that, instead of just hearing it, you can look it up on my blog. And my next episode, I'm going to be talking about a topic that I'm sure a lot of you will be very excited by, which is the musical of Hamilton. I'm going to talk about why I loved it, but also had to sort of turn my brain off for aspects of it. I'm going to talk about why those of you who are sort of looking at Alexander Hamilton as a heroic alternative to Thomas Jefferson may want to uh, slow down on that a little bit. So until next time, peace out.